or uh, hard copy, that would be fine as well. Uh, just a couple of uh, brief things that didn't make the Connect card. Uh, one was uh, last week I uh, did a sermon on uh, uh, gospel-shaped marriage, essentially, and uh, there was a Q&A after that. The sermon's going to be up on the website uh, later tonight or tomorrow. Uh, some of you might still have questions kind of percolating away uh, to do with that. Please uh, let me know. I might have answered your question last week uh, in an unsatisfactory way, or, uh, so please uh, follow up with me. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, next Sunday, uh, on the question of marriage and good relationships between men and women, uh, we've got a, our church has a partnership uh, with a World Vision program called Channels of Hope, and there's going to be a rep from Channels of Hope here next Sunday. I'll be interviewing him and asking him a bunch of questions about what the program's doing. Uh, and so uh, it didn't make the Connect card, but it'll be here next week. Similar sort of deal to what Chris did with Alicia today, but I'll interview the guy from Channels of Hope. Uh, but let's pray, and then we'll look uh, at this passage from Ephesians 6. Uh, Our Father, please uh, speak to us this day. Uh, Please uh, take your word by the power of your spirit and use it to mould and shape uh, every part of our lives, particularly this day, uh, as we think about our home lives and how we uh, live in the workplace. Uh, Please, Father, uh, help me to be faithful and clear and humble. And uh, please, uh, may we really feel that we have met with you this day and heard your voice. Amen. Uh, So uh, we've just come through the US elections. Uh, Some of you might have been following that really closely, uh, perhaps others not. Uh, But uh, we've certainly heard a whole lot about the word integrity. Uh, Does Hillary Clinton have integrity? Does Donald Trump have integrity? And those are good questions to ask of uh, prospective presidents of the United States. Uh, But it's easy to kind of look at someone else and say, does that person have integrity? Uh, What about you? Are you a person of integrity? Uh, One definition of integrity uh, is a state of being whole and undivided. So a bridge uh, could be said to have structural integrity when its structure is whole and not compromised, not divided in any way. Uh, So uh, likewise, a person has integrity when their life is whole and undivided. Their life is kind of integrated. Uh, There's kind of consistency in how they live uh, across all the different spheres of their life. You're really clear on who they are as a person. Uh, In this sense, I think that uh, a whole bunch of Christians, including myself, let's be honest at times, uh, we lack integrity. Uh, We lack integrity because, uh, in part because we're bought into the rhetoric of our culture uh, which tells us, uh, yeah, sure, you can have your religious beliefs, uh, just keep them to yourself. But it's a private thing between you and God. And so we've kind of bought into that so much that we tend to privatise our faith. We compartmentalise it and allow it and think of it as affecting some parts of our life but not our whole life. And so we end up lacking integrity. Some parts of our lives are shaped by the gospel and other parts we just live essentially exactly the same as someone who's not a Christian. There's not that consistency or wholeness uh, to our lives. And what we see in Ephesians and really in the whole Bible is that being a Christian is not just a private thing between you and God. It's an all-encompassing system of belief that should shape over time every part of your life. 
Uh, last week we saw how the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, uh, how the gospel should shape our marriages. Uh, and this week we're going to see how the gospel should shape our homes and our workplaces. As that happens, over time we'll be more and more people of integrity. So first, let's look at verses 1 to 4. Paul talks uh, about what I'm saying is, is gospel-shaped homes. Uh, before we look at the details of the verses, I, I just want to say right up front uh, that I am a parent. I've got two kids, uh, but I haven't been a parent for very long. And I'm certainly not the, the font of all wisdom about parenting. Uh, but God, has, God is the font of all wisdom, and his word has some useful things to say. Uh, and so hopefully I'll be able to explain those things and apply them as humbly and as fruitfully as possible. So verses 1 to 3, Paul talks to children, children who, who are a part of the church. Uh, unfortunately, our kids are out in kids' time mostly, but the kids up the back crawling around, tune in. Uh, right? Uh, right, but, but this is another example like uh, of the theme Paul introduced back in chapter 5, verse 21. Right, you remember back then, the spirit-filled community, Paul said, is one in which people submit to one another out of reverence uh, to Christ. And then he's, going to give, he's giving us uh, three examples of that. Uh, last week, uh, he talked about wives submitting to their husbands. As I say, listen to the sermon uh, if you want to hear more about that. And in this passage, talking about children submitting to their parents and slaves submitting to their masters. Uh, before we look at the, these, uh, this section about kids, uh, it's worth asking, uh, how old are the children that Paul's talking to? Some of you might have that question in your mind. Uh, and it's actually quite a hard question to answer uh, because uh, different cultures have different answers uh, for the age at which someone is a child or not. Right? But probably the, the, the best thing, uh, and I, actually it's particularly important in our context uh, where lots of children uh, are living with their parents well into their 20s right? for all sorts of reasons. Uh, so it's important to well, like who are these children? Uh, well, the best that we can do, I think, in, in answering that question uh, is that if a particular culture identifies a child as a child, uh, according to law, uh, custom, uh, tradition, uh, then it's reasonable to say that the child's a child and that these verses uh, apply to them. Right? So, so here in Australia, generally speaking, these verses are for people under the age of 18. Of course, if you choose to live at home under your parents' roof beyond the age of 18, that might blur the lines a bit. You might have, it might make the conversation with your parents a, a little bit more difficult. But in general, in Australia, a child is someone under 18. So I'm saying that's who these verses apply to. Teenage years, tricky too, right? Increasing independence, all right, but that's, in general, that's the answer, I think. Uh, so that, let, let's look at the specifics here, right? First, verse 1, uh, Paul says children uh, should obey their parents. Right, obedience uh, is really the, the fundamental, uh, obedience and love, right? They're two sides of, of what uh, the relationship between parents and their kids. Right? Obedience is fundamental of what parents should expect of their kids. It's not absolute obedience, right? If a parent tells a child to do something that's illegal or uh, that's clearly unbiblical, the child doesn't have to obey, right? But in general, children obey their parents, Right, and you'll see there uh, that Paul says they should obey their parents uh, for this is right. What right, he's thinking here about what you might call uh, natural law. Right, it's the law of relationships that, that God has kind of written into the heart of every human being. 
And so really, it doesn't matter what culture you're from, uh, whether it's Christian or not, pretty much all cultures say that it's right for children to obey their parents. I don't know of a culture that says uh, it's right for parents to obey their kids. Perhaps some uh, Western kind of, perhaps some people you know uh, go by that kind of philosophy. But uh, generally speaking, it's right, Paul says, uh, for children to obey their parents. So this means that in loving ways, in appropriate ways, uh, children should kind of require obedience of their kids. They should enforce it. We'll talk more about this in a bit, but this is part of what Paul means when he says children should obey their parents in the Lord. You see that there? He's saying that when a parent teaches their kids to obey them, right? For a kid, their parents are the primary loving kind of authority figure in their life. Right, so if a parent teaches their kids to obey them, they're also teaching them to obey the Lord. Uh, On the flip side, if a parent fails to teach their children to obey them, they're also teaching them that they can disobey the Lord and there's really no consequences. No big deal. So children should obey their parents. Second, children should honour their parents, Paul says. Uh, They should honour them not not, not just because it's right, like not just because of the natural law, uh, but because of God's actual law, right? His written law, the Ten Commandments. Uh, this command that children should honour their parents is the fifth of, of the Ten Commandments. Uh, you can chase it up in Exodus chapter 20 if you want to. Now, of course, on one level, children honour their parents by obeying them. Uh, but what, what are the kind of limits of that obedience? Well, in general, I think that children should obey and honour their parents uh, in all areas of their life, whether their parents are Christians or not, uh, unless doing so means disobeying God. That's that's the caveat. Sorry, a couple of examples. Uh, Let's say uh, a non-Christian parent uh, forbids their child who's become a Christian from being baptised. What does the the kid do? Well, I think the child can obey that. They can honour their parents in that. Right, because Jesus tells his disciples that they should be baptised, but he doesn't say exactly when that should happen. And a child can easily wait until they're an adult uh, to make the decision to be baptised. On the other hand, uh, if a child becomes a Christian and their parent who's not a Christian says, you're not allowed to be a Christian, they forbid them from becoming a Christian, then of course that child can't obey that. Right, because that obedience would not be in the Lord. It would be dishonouring to the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. So those, are, I guess, in broad terms, are the limits of this obedience. But in an even broader sense, honouring your parents isn't just about obeying them. That's kind of the heart of it. But the word honour there also has the sense of valuing your parents, even admiring your parents, respecting them. Now, of course, some of you might have trouble thinking of anything about your parents, uh, that you could honour. Uh, for some of you, that's that's really painful space to think in. Uh, how could you possibly honour a father who was abusive, who was an alcoholic? How could you honour a mum who was uh, really manipulative, who, who sought to control you all the time? 
God's not calling us, calling you to, to pretend that your parents were perfect or, or that they didn't hurt you uh, in all sorts of ways. Some of them are intentional and some of them unintentional. But God is calling you to honour, uh, I guess, what you can about your parents. Uh, for example, uh, my dad uh, is, you'd probably say he's the emotional, uh, emotionally distant type. Uh, on one level, you can have conversations with him, but it's hard to talk about feelings. Uh, in general, it's a bit tricky to communicate with them. Uh, but my dad had admirable qualities. Like he, he always uh, kind of set a, a godly agenda for the family and encouraged us to go to church and read the Bible with us. And so I can honour that, even if I don't necessarily appreciate that it was hard to communicate with at times. Well, let's say your, your mum is a bit kind of controlling, like a bit suffocating in her love. Well, I, but on one level you go, look, I know that her intentions are good. Like she really does care about me. Like a, you, you might be able to separate those things. You can honour the fact that she means well, that she wants to nurture you and love you, uh, even if it's a bit suffocating at times. Right? God calls us to, to honour, to admire, to respect uh, what we can about our parents. Maybe even to be specific about telling them that from time to time. And Paul gives two encouragements here uh, to children, uh, incentives really, uh, for them to obey and honour their parents. Uh, the first is that promise. Right? He says, if you obey and honour your parents, life will go well for you and, and you'll enjoy a long life on this earth. That sounds pretty blanket, doesn't it? Like, I, 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 so this is not a guarantee that, that every child who obeys their parents is going to live longer and have a better life than every child that doesn't. There's no guarantee of that. But it is saying that God's blessing, in general, follows obedience. And so God will bless children who seek to obey and honour their parents. That's the first incentive. The, the second and the most important incentive is that Paul says we should obey and honour our parents in the Lord. Right, that phrase, in the Lord, he's saying that your willingness to humble yourself and to obey your parents is really just a natural extension of your willingness to humble yourself and obey Christ the Lord. Right, it's an outworking of the gospel. And so if you're a, a Christian child who finds it hard to submit to the authority of your parents to obey and honour them, it's probably a sign that you're struggling to submit to, to obey and honour the Lord Jesus in parts of your life. I think this is a spiritual uh, litmus test for kids, for children. Uh, so those are the incentives. Uh, of course, I reckon at this point, uh, probably most of us, whether you're under or over 18, uh, on one level, you might be feeling a bit guilty I think most of us find it really hard to obey and honour our parents. And there could be all sorts of reasons for that. But at its core, I think it's because in our sin we are completely convinced that life would be so much better if only we were in control. I said that with Ada, it's like she's three, but she's utterly convinced of that. Life would be better if I could call the shots in every area of my life. And so we rebel against our parents, we, we kind of chafe against their authority and we fail to obey and honour them. And so how does the gospel speak into this? 
Either the gospel says that that's okay on one level. But it's okay because we don't have to be the perfect children, right? Because who's the perfect child? Not us. It's the Lord Jesus who's the perfect child. But the Lord Jesus is the one who perfectly obeyed and honoured his father in our place. He's the perfect child. The one who said to his father, even in the face of death, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. But he is the perfect child, the one who obeyed and honoured his father all the way to death. Right? And because Christ is the perfect child, uh, but it, it's actually, it's not even though he's the perfect child, isn't it? And that he was willing, uh, because of his great love for you, his great love for me, uh, to give his life on the cross for rebellious children like us. And, and that's how it works. Right? The, the more uh, you understand that you're accepted by God, not because you're a perfect child who's nailed, obeying and honouring your parents at every point. Now, you're not accepted because of that. You're accepted because Christ is the perfect child, the, the perfect child who loved you and was willing to, to die in your place on the cross for all your rebellion. Right, the more deeply those truths shape your life, the more willing you'll be to respond to Christ's great act of love, his great act of obeying and honouring his father by obeying and honouring your parents. That's how the gospel drives you to this kind of lifestyle. It's not just big stick, here's the rule, obey it. It's life transformed by what Christ has done for you. Right, you'll be a, a gospel-shaped child. That's the kids. In verse 4, Paul turns to parents. Uh, just uh, briefly, yeah, you'll notice uh, in the Bible reading, uh, Paul addresses this specifically to fathers. Uh, that doesn't exclude mums. Right? In Paul's day, uh, the word brothers was often used as, as a generic term. So I could say brothers, even though there's sisters here. Right? It was a generic term for a crowd that included both. In, in the same way, you could say fathers. Uh, to a crowd of mothers and fathers. So it doesn't exclude mums, and for the most part, I'm going to talk about these verses uh, as if they address parents. Uh, yeah, so I will say one or two things directly to dads. Uh, so Paul's words in verse 4, you can see they have a negative and a positive side. Uh, the negative side is that parents shouldn't exasperate their children. Uh, this is particularly about how we discipline our kids. So the question is, what might it look like to discipline our children in a way uh, that doesn't exasperate them? Oh, I said earlier, I'm not an expert, uh, but I'll, I'll make a few suggestions, uh, just a few suggestions. Uh, the first is that our discipline of our kids should be predictable. Right? Our, our children should know exactly where the boundaries are. That's containing for kids. That's what they need. Kind of clarity and predictability on where mum and dad set the boundaries. Uh, second, uh, our discipline should be reasoned, not arbitrary. Uh, so particularly as kids get older, uh, they should know not just where the boundaries are, but why the boundaries are there. Why is this important? Because remember, we're teaching our kids in how we discipline them what God is like. And God never just says, do this just cause, just because I'm powerful and you're not. No, he has loving and wise reasons for the boundaries he puts in place. 
So as much as possible, we want our kids, as they get older in particular, to understand the loving and wise reasons that we have for the boundaries that we put in place. Our discipline reasoned, not arbitrary. A third, I reckon our discipline, oh, well, this is perhaps a no-brainer, right? It has to be consistent, right? Like, don't set a boundary here and then move it all the time. That's exasperating for kids. It's exasperating for you in the workplace, isn't it? We'll talk about maybe. But, like, if your boss is constantly shifting the goalposts, that's tricky. It's exasperating, right? So, so as, as much as possible, we want our boundaries to be consistent. And we want to be consistent in trying to enforce the boundaries, like even when we're tired and, and can't be bothered. Try to kind of hold the line. Our fourth thing. Uh, we should try to show care and love and uh, self-control in our discipline. Uh, I've got, we've got to be honest. Like, If you're talking with parents, uh, kids are extremely frustrating, aren't they? Like, It's very, very easy to get angry. Uh, It's very tempting to lash out, uh, to have outbursts of anger. Uh, We've got to remember that that's not what God's like. Like God gets angry at things, but his anger's controlled. It's not lashing out in an uncontrolled manner. And so we should seek to show love and self-control and care in our discipline. So those are at least some aspects of discipline that might not exasperate our kids. On the positive side, Paul says uh, we should bring our children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is positive. It's saying we should actively teach God's word to our children. And just a word here to to mums and dads. uh, There's no way we'll be able to do this if we don't know God's word ourselves. So as parents, we've got to make regular time to study God's word to reflect on his word, to, to uh, meditate on it, to be moulded and shaped by it. Incidentally, this is one of the things we're grappling with as a church. As, as a whole bunch of people have children and our structures for encouraging people in maturity is like, come to an evening Bible study. Well, what do I do with that? So this is a challenge that we need to address. How do we keep helping parents to be fed with God's word so they can actively teach and instruct uh, their, their kids? But anyway, you're wanting to be moulded and shaped by God's word. You're wanting your kids uh, to see you applying God's word to your own life. So they they might see that when you say sorry to your husband and wife in front of them. Husband or wife. Husband and wife. That would be a bit quirky, wouldn't it? Uh, (laughs) Husband or wife. Right? That's okay. That's a good thing to do. Like, let your kids see you say sorry. That's a great thing to model. Or they might see it when you actually ask them to forgive you for when you lost your temper, when you were disciplining them. Right? We should be actively teaching and, and modelling God's word uh, to our children. And that leads to, I guess, two applications uh, I just wanted to, to touch on. Uh, the first is uh, that as parents, I reckon we have to understand the difference uh, between discipline uh, which, at least how I think about it, and maybe you've got a much better framework than me, but like understand the difference between discipline, uh, which is often largely about behaviour management, and discipleship, uh, which is actually about seeking to shape our children's hearts with the truth of the gospel. You see the difference? 
And so I understand this is really hard, especially when your kids are young. Uh, they're just not capable of rational conversation about the gospel, especially when they're angry or upset. Right? So I understand that like, the, the whole tension between let's just put boundaries and manage behaviour and let's shape hearts by the truth of the gospel, that's hard to grapple with. Uh, but as much as possible, I think we have to find ways to do this, uh, like, one, like just simple ways. And who knows what goes in, but like since, uh, for example, since Ada was quite young, uh, we've tried with, with varying degrees of success uh, to not just say to her, uh, don't push other kids at the playground. Like we try to say to her, uh, don't push to other kids at the playground uh, because in Jesus, I'm going to say this every time, right? But in Jesus, God has been loving and kind to us. So in our house, we try to be loving and kind to other people. So we're just trying to shift the focus a little bit from pure behaviour management to a conversation where we're actually trying to disciple Ada's heart with the truth of the gospel. So she can see that loving people and being kind to them is not just cause, but it's outworking of who we are as Christians. Right, Gabby and I certainly aren't experts. We don't nail this in all sorts of ways. And I'm really keen for us as a church to work out what this looks like. But I am conscious that lots of kids who get brought up in Christian homes still somehow get the message that if you do good stuff, God loves you. And, um, and so somehow we've got to disciple our kids' hearts with the truth of the gospel. And I'm keen for us to work that out together. A second, uh, let, let me encourage you as parents uh, to not outsource discipleship of your kids to the church. Right, we love kids here at Darab and Prezi. Uh, we will do everything we can uh, to bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Right, we're committed to that. Uh, but please be clear that, that here in this passage, it's clear, isn't it, that in God's eyes, it's you who are primarily responsible for discipling your kids, not this church. We're, we're really eager to help. So please don't kind of outsource discipleship to the church. And a word to dads. Dads, do not outsource discipleship of your kids to your wife. Sometimes this happens, like mum's kind of bookending the day, both ends of the day because dad's gone to work. I don't want to get into cultural stereotypes, right? Dad gets home from work, he's tired. The last thing he wants to do is read the Bible with the kids or pray with them, or Right? So we can outsource discipleship to our wives. But in the end, I'm not sure that's good because as much as these verses are for parents, actually, in the end, it's dads who are primarily responsible for the spiritual direction uh, in God's eyes of their families. And, uh, and so we should step up and take that responsibility, dads. And we should encourage our wives so that together we're actively discipling our kids. So there you go. There's the bar what we should all do and of course we struggle to do that as well uh, if I'm honest I often feel like I'm doing an ordinary job being a parent trying to kind of chase around doing the best job I can of pastoring the church and then kind of thinking oh gee this part of my life I'm neglecting that and this part of my life I'm neglecting that uh, and part of the reason why I struggle uh, is because uh, by and large I'm a pretty performance driven kind of guy and so it's not that hard for me to get stuck in a cycle uh, of justification via parenting. And maybe this is exacerbated, uh, exacerbated by the fact that I'm the pastor of a church and perhaps to some extent, although no one would ever say, uh, people are watching my kids more closely than other kids. And there's something right about that, right? But it's easy for me to think that, that my kids have to be perfect because that's how I'm proving myself to other people. 
That's my justification. Not via Christ, but by having perfect kids. Uh, other parents struggle, not really because of that, uh, but because they're driven by approval. And so they, in the end, want their kids to like them, not so much respect them. Uh, they want to be their kid's best friend, but not their parent. And so they find it really hard to set any boundaries. And so things, things get a bit chaotic. Like their kids love them because they let them do what they want. Uh, other parents, perhaps, are driven by comfort on one level. So they, they, you sort of talk to them and it feels like they kind of resent their kids because they're just getting in the way of what they really want to do. Like all of us, like if you're a parent, you have these kind of struggles, these deep things in your heart that, that make it really hard uh, for you to live out what Paul's saying here about parenting. And once again, like it's probably a multi-pronged approach, like how do we deal with this? Uh, but at its core, it's about the gospel. Right, because the gospel tells you and it tells me uh, that we don't have to be perfect parents. Because who's the perfect parents? The perfect parent is our heavenly father. He's the perfect parent. We don't have to be perfect. Right? He's the one who loved his son perfectly, who disciplined his son perfectly. Right, so it's his son who's the perfect child, not your kid's. But then our Heavenly Father, who, who loved His Son perfectly, who disciplined Him perfectly, uh, gave His Son. He gave Him to die on the cross uh, for every single failure you've ever had as a parent and for every single failure you've ever had, full stop. But I reckon uh, the more that truth shapes your life and how you think about parenting, uh, the more you'll respond to your Heavenly Father's great act of love for you by being a bit more like him in the way that you discipline and disciple your kids. That is gospel-shaped parenting, verses 1 to 4. Gospel-shaped home, parents and kids. Right, verses 5 to 9, Paul moves on to workplaces. Right, I could have easily done these as separate sermons. Uh, no time. So here we go, workplaces. Much, probably shorter on workplaces. Uh, some of you might think, as you read these verses, uh, why doesn't Paul condemn slavery? Uh, reasonable question, don't have time to answer it fully today. Uh, but my short answer is that Paul's uh, main concern in this passage is not whether slavery is illegitimate or legitimate, uh, but how the gospel should shape how Christian masters and Christian slaves uh, relate to people in their workplaces. That's his concern, not building a case for uh, whether slavery is Christian or biblical or not. If you want to talk more about that, we can. Uh, you also see I'm going to apply this to uh, employees and employers. Uh, that's not because I think the relationship is exactly the same. It's just because it's the most parallel context uh, for us. Uh, so how should uh, Christian employees uh, relate to their employees, employers? Uh, four or five things, right? First, they should obey them. That's what Paul says, isn't it? Uh, your, your employer tells you what work has to be done. Uh, perhaps how it should be done, uh, when it has to be done, and your job is to do it, isn't it? You obey them. Like with kids, you don't obey them if it means disobeying God, but generally speaking, you obey. A second, uh, you respect and fear your employer. But this is willing respect, not respect through gritted teeth. And the fear here is not about being terrified of your employer. 
it's just honouring and respecting their role as your boss. Which I understand it might be hard if they're really foolish or dysfunctional or disorganised, but that's the calling. And Paul does say it's made easier by the fact that ultimately uh, when you respect and fear and serve your employer, your your earthly master, uh, you're not actually serving them, you're serving Christ, your heavenly master. So you see how this is an outworking of the gospel. You respect and fear your employer as you respect and fear Christ. A third thing, employees serve their employers with sincerity, Paul says. This has the sense of being generous in how you work. Don't be known in your workplace as being the person who does the bare minimum all the time. Like you might need to put different boundaries around your work to other people in your workplace because you're a Christian, I understand that. But let's not be known as the people who do the bare minimum. Let's be known as, as people who are generous in our service. We're prepared to go the extra mile. A fourth, employees should be loyal to their employers. This is my way of summarising that phrase where Paul says, employees should obey their employers, not just to win their favour when they're watching them, Uh, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. You you don't just work hard when your boss is watching you uh, and then kind of go back to watching the cricket or kind of surfing the net in some other way. You you loyally work hard for your boss. You work hard for your company, for your organisation, whether they're watching you or not. Why? Because you know that even when your earthly master is not watching, your heavenly master is. Right? Your earthly master might not see everything, but he does, and he rewards accordingly. Our fifth, uh, employees uh, should have goodwill towards their employers. Right? We serve them wholeheartedly, Paul says, not begrudgingly, uh, but willingly, cheerfully. And I touched on before, there will be rewards if you serve your employer in this way. Paul's obviously thinking about heavenly rewards from your heavenly master. But in general, this is true on an earthly level, isn't it? If you serve wholeheartedly in your workplace, generally speaking, you'll be rewarded. It might be a pay rise, a promotion, a new opportunity opens up. And I reckon it's okay to be motivated by that. As long as your primary motivation is to do what pleases your heavenly master and to receive his rewards. And what about Christian employers? Or perhaps people here who um, you might not directly employ people, but you've got a position of authority in your workplace. Uh, Well, on one level, everything Paul's just said to employees uh, applies to you. Because you see there, he says, masters are to treat their slaves in the same way. But that doesn't mean uh, employers are supposed to obey their employees. Right? That, that, that's a bit ridiculous. Kind of, no, no, I'm obeying you. No, I'm obeying you. No, that's, like, we know that that's not what he's saying. But it does mean that uh, employers should treat their employees in the same way uh, that they would like to be treated. And as a Christian, there's two reasons for that. So I'm just going to finish by talking about them. Uh, The first is uh, that no matter who your employees are, no matter who you're overseeing, no matter what their status in the workplace, they are created in the image of God and they deserve to be treated with the utmost dignity and respect. 
Right? It's a creation thing. It's an image of God thing. Uh, R.C. Sproul, a uh, uh, guy in the States, wrote a book called The Search for Dignity. And in it, he, he tells a story of a day that he uh, spent uh, observing nonverbal communication at a local hospital. Uh, so he's looking at uh, how doctors and nurses and other hospital, hospital staff uh, communicate to one another. Uh, and as he was observing throughout the day, uh, he noticed how uh, some nurses in particular, you know, probably not true of all nurses, uh, you talk to the nurses here, but some nurses in particular uh, seemed to kind of really switch on. Uh, they really kind of perked up when certain doctors came into the room. And it was clear that those doctors were at the top of the food chain. Right? Their body language, their facial expressions, it just told you that. Uh, but then, uh, as uh, Sproul was kind of thinking about that, uh, he saw uh, a man uh, pushing a trolley of dirty laundry along the corridor. And he looked quite happy in his work, quite cheerful, pleased you know, to be fulfilling his purpose as a cleaner at the bottom of the food chain, pretty much. And then Sproul saw one of the nurses who'd been with the doctors uh, going along the corridor, uh, and the guy pushing the laundry trolley uh, raises his head. Uh, what's he looking for? He's looking for some kind of acknowledgement from the nurse. A smile, a, a nod, some kind of recognition that he exists as a human being. But the nurse turns her head away, looks down. And the guy, he, he keeps pushing his trolley, but you can just tell he's deflated, right? Every bit of dignity and respect has been sucked out of him because one person dropped their head. Right? This happens, doesn't it? It happens in our workplaces. And, and, and this kind of behaviour is just not on if you're a Christian. Like Christians should treat uh, any, everyone in their workplace, or Christians, I should say, should never treat anyone in their workplace uh, as if they're invisible, as if they somehow don't count or they're not worth your time. Right? Christians acknowledge and respect all people, no matter what their status in the workplace, everyone's created in God's image. They deserve to be treated with the utmost dignity and respect. Oh, but it's more than that. Well, uh, no, let's, let's come at it this way. We struggle with this. Let's put it that way. Uh, Christian employees struggle with this, uh, these, these teachings, uh, because like children, we don't like being under the authority of our boss. Right? We, are, we are so convinced that our workplace would be so much better if we were in control. Right? You sit there, you think that pathway, that process, that policy, that procedure, right? it would all, it'd be all functioning kind of beautifully if only I was at the helm. And the trouble is, uh, if you look at the cross, uh, you see that we don't do that good a job of being in control. Right, it was our desire to, to hold on control of our lives and be in control of everything uh, that led our heavenly master uh, to need to die on the cross. So employees, we ought to respect and obey our employees, employers uh, as we see uh, that our heavenly master was willing to respect and obey his father for our sin, for all our kind of chafing against our employer's authority. And employers struggle. And perhaps part of the reason why they struggle is because on some level they think, oh, but I've worked really hard for this position. Like, not everyone has this status. 
the prestige of this title? Surely I should enjoy it a bit. Maybe I should flaunt it a bit at times at the expense of others. The cross tells us that the the one with all authority, with all power, with all prestige, right? Our, our heavenly master was willing to be treated like a slave for us. For our sins. Christ, who had real power, but instead of using it uh, to inflict pain on others, uh, he used it to bear pain in their place. So so really, how could you, if you can really see Christ, your heavenly master, becoming a slave for you, how could you ever look down your nose at someone else? Like, I hope you can see how being a Christian is not just about sorting out your personal relationship with God. But the gospel, this good news, should permeate and shape every part of your life, including your home and your workplace. And to the degree that that happens, you'll be someone of integrity. Right? Over time, your life, every sphere of your life, uh, will be more integrated. You'll be more whole because it will all be shaped by the truth of the gospel, you see. Not having some parts of your life shaped by the dominant culture there <laughs> and other parts shaped by the gospel, but everything shaped by the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Uh, our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for the good news of the gospel. Uh, we praise you that uh, this news... Uh, really does have power uh, to shape uh, every single part of our lives. Uh, We confess that we struggle with this, uh, that we do uh, tend uh, towards privatising our faith or kind of compartmentalising it so that we allow Jesus to rule over some parts of our life but not others. We apply the gospel to some parts and not others. Uh, Help us this day in particular uh, to think about what it looks like for our uh, homes and our workplaces to be shaped by uh, these truths in the gospel, uh, particularly uh, for parents as they parent their kids, uh, for children in terms of how we relate to our parents and for employees and employers. Uh, Help us to bring honour and praise to you, our heavenly master. Uh, We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.